Micah 5, 1 through 5, says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Well, I was born in Pascagoula. And, uh, of course, Pascagoula is known for shipbuilding. In fact, my grandfather was uh, a shipbuilder, a welder at the shipyard. I don't know if he was, you could call him a shipbuilder, but he built ships and he welded on them. Uh, but our hometowns, our birthplaces, are often places that are known for something. I grew up in Grand Bay. It's known for its watermelons. Uh, many of you grew up here in Biloxi. You, you have a great heritage of seafood and, and now casinos, sadly. Uh, other things as well. Uh, each, each person's hometown is known for something. Uh, you can, even the most insignificant places are known for something. Well, today... We're going to be looking at this prophecy from Micah that we just read, and it concerns Jesus and his birthplace, a very insignificant place, but that is well known now, of course, because of its association with the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, this season, this Christmas season, this Advent season, is a, a time when we look back at the first coming of Christ, the first Advent of Christ, but we also look forward to the second coming of Christ, the second advent of Christ. He is coming again. And we're going to look now at Micah's prophecy 700 years before the first coming of Christ and to see what it has to say to us today who are waiting for the second coming of Christ and celebrating the first coming of Christ. Now, Micah was a prophet and his name actually means who is like Yahweh in Hebrew. Who is like Yahweh? In fact, at the end of the book, he asks that question. Who is like Yahweh? Who is like our God? And as we think about uh, what Christmas means, as we think about the incarnation, the coming in the flesh of God, uh, we, we think about the significance of what that means for us in our lives and it should fill our hearts with great joy. And I hope that as we think about these things, it will rekindle in our hearts the hope of Christ's coming again and, and a true celebration of the fact that he came the first time to deliver us from our greatest enemy, which is sin. Well, there are several observations I want to make in the text here. And uh, the text begins, you see here in verse 1, with a situation that is hopeless now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. And O daughter of troops is a reference to Jerusalem. So he's, uh, Micah speaking to the people in Jerusalem. At that time, uh, Jerusalem and Judah were in a lot of trouble. The Babylonians were conquering the world, it seemed. 
and they were knocking on the door of Jerusalem. They laid siege to Jerusalem for a few years, actually, and uh, they eventually conquered Jerusalem and, of course, uh, sent everybody away out to live in Babylon and other places. So the city was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and during the siege, they were basically uh, starved out. The inhabitants of Jerusalem actually had to resort eventually to cannibalism to stay alive. Horrid scenes there in this terrible, terrible siege by the Babylonians. And Micah is prophesying about this happening. And he's, he's saying to Jerusalem, muster your troops. And the word there for troops is not an army. It's literally a throng or band of raiders. They were in such dire circumstances that they couldn't even muster an army. And they're under siege, it said. And they've captured the king, the judge of Israel, and they're striking him on the cheek. They're insulting the king. Uh, they have no respect for Israel. They have no respect for the chosen king of Israel. And they don't have any power or resources to fight against the mighty Babylonians. It's a desperate, desperate situation. All the more desperate when you realize that this king that is going to be sent off into exile and is being insulted by the Babylonians is the Davidic king. And God had made promises to, to David when David was anointed king. He says, to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this is quite shocking to the inhabitants of Jerusalem that this king, the one that is, is, has been supposedly established forever, it looks like he's going to be destroyed, and he was. This is the starting point of this passage. Some very, very bad news. And Ralph Davis in his commentary on Micah says, this is so often where God begins in our abysmal helplessness. And isn't that what's great about Christmas is that we can't save ourselves. We don't have any resources to save ourselves from our greatest enemy, which is sin. That's what really is our problem, is sin. And, and we don't have the strength, the power to deliver ourselves from sin. We can't be good enough to wipe it away. We can't be forgiven of it by ourselves. Uh, it's something that God had to do, and he did it. In a hopeless situation, God entered in. And I hope you recognize today, and, and really you'll appreciate Christmas all the more, if you recognize that you're a sinner in need of this Savior that has come, this little child who, who became vulnerable for us. I mean, this, of course, this is, was a, a baby doll, but in that manger many years ago, God was there in the flesh, vulnerable, needing his diaper changed, you know, needing to depend on Mary and Joseph for his life. God went to those lengths for us. And he went even further, obviously, by laying down his life voluntarily for us on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. God enters in, and that's where we come to this unexpected salvation that's described here in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Bethlehem uh, means house of bread, and Ephrathah means fruitful. It might have been an old name for Bethlehem, so it's referred to in both of them, means uh, a fruitful uh, house of bread. And of course, that's where the bread of life comes from, Jesus Christ, who said, I am the bread of life. 
You know, come to me and, and you'll never be hungry spiritually again. But this place is not significant. Like Pascagoula, my hometown. Well, it's not that significant, is it? But I was born there, so it must be pretty significant. But Bethlehem was nothing. It says here, Who, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Now, when uh, the, the Israelites were taking over the promised land way back after the Exodus. Joshua went in and conquered it and they started divvying up the land. And you can go to Joshua and read chapters where it lists all the towns, all the little cities that were given to each, each tribe. And when you read the Joshua 15 and it describes all the cities that were given to Judah as an inheritance, over 100 cities are named there. But Bethlehem is not named there. So it's not even in the top 100 of, the, of, of Judah's cities. And Judah wasn't that great big of a territory. So it's a tiny, tiny, little, insignificant place. But from me shall come one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from, from of old. Now, interestingly, if you look really closely at the quotation in Matthew 2, it's slightly different than the quotation as it is in Micah. In Micah it says, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. When the, uh, when the wise people say it in Matthew 2, it says, uh, O Bethlehem, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Now, it seems like they, maybe they're saying this completely different things, but they're not. Judah was small and insignificant, but not so small that a ruler can't come from you. A ruler is going to come from you that is going to be the greatest ruler, the greatest one of all time. God is prone to chose these obscure, insignificant, lowly, common, unnoticed things as the very instruments through which he displays the brightest flashes of his glory. You look at the way God works throughout history. Uh, in the scriptures, it's often with unknown people or obscure people that he uses. And here he is using little Bethlehem. Now, we might be tempted to overlook Christmas and, and Jesus, especially during this holiday season when we're so busy. Uh, we can get distracted from what's really important and overlook things. We can be like, uh, if you look at the quote on the front of the bulletin, Billy Graham talks about the innkeeper there in Bethlehem. One response was given by the innkeeper when Mary and Joseph wanted to find a room where the child could be born. The innkeeper was not hostile. He was not opposed to them. But his inn was crowded. His hands were full. His mind was preoccupied. This is the answer that millions are giving today. Like a Bethlehem innkeeper, they cannot find room for Christ. All the accommodations in their hearts are already taken up by other crowding interests. Their response is not atheism, it is not defiance, it is preoccupation and the feeling of being able to get on reasonably well without Christianity. It isn't sad that so many people uh, know the Christmas story, know what God has done, but ignore it. It reminds me of our time in England where less than 1% of the population actually goes to church. And, uh, but each year, our, every school basically 
uh, would have a nativity play, and they would rehearse the the uh, the birth of Christ, and everyone knew all the the hymns that were sung, and churches would be full uh, coming to see their children in these wonderful nativity plays. And it was just sad to think about how many so many people knew the words, sang the songs, knew the story, but didn't believe. Where are you today? You know the story. Have you embraced Christ in your heart? Are you overlooking it like so many people who would be tempted to overlook someone from Bethlehem? Don't overlook Christ because he's that one. He's that one that is described as the ruler, the one who was from of old, from of ancient days. Now that might mean, of course it, we believe it means he's eternal. He's from the ancient of days. Christ is true God and true man. It can also mean that, that he's going all the way back to the Davidic root, like it says in, in uh, Isaiah 11, about the one who shall come, from a, uh, there shall come from a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. He shall come forth for me, it says. The coming kingdom is for God, not for us. It is his show, not ours. That's what we need to be paying attention to. It's his show, his kingdom that he's establishing, and you need to be a part of that because his kingdom is the only one that's going to last. And if you ignore his kingdom, you're going to be out of his kingdom that's going to last forever. His heart, though, even though it's all about him and his kingdom, his heart is to show steadfast love. It's to invite people into his kingdom, to be a part of his kingdom, to enjoy the blessings that the Messiah brings into people's lives. Have you embraced those today? Don't ignore what seems to be insignificant, what seems to be meaningless, but examine Christ. I, I try to tell people all the time, don't dismiss Christianity just because it's out of fashion in the world, especially if you haven't even looked at it yourself. Have you read what the Scriptures say about Jesus? Have you examined the claims of Christ if you do that and you think it's rubbish, fine. But at least look at it. Examine it for yourself and see what Christ says. See what promises he's made. See what he's done for sinners such as you are, such as I am, such as we all are. So there's a, this one who's coming from this small place unexpectedly. And then we read about a sorrow that is temporary in verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Now, he's talking about God shall give them, his people, up until when Mary, who is in labor, has given birth. They're going to go into exile. That's what Micah is prophesying 700 years before it happens. And, and he's warning the, the, uh, the Israelites that they are going to suffer for a time. There's going to be... Uh, some misery that's coming. And that's not God being cruel. That's God saying, look, I haven't abandoned you. You're going to go through difficult times for a while, but the Messiah is coming, and, and he will be born. It's a loving thing that he does to us. And now as we look at our situation, as we who are believers are, are waiting on the return of Christ, well, following Christ in this age between the advents... Uh, Jesus said, if you follow me, you're going to suffer. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be 
difficulties with sin and the brokenness of the world. There's going to be uh, difficulties trying to overcome our own sin and, and, and it's going to be a slow process of growth. Our bodies are decaying. You know, things go wrong. There's suffering. And then there's persecution for being a follower of Christ that comes with those who are faithful. He's warned us about these things, but, it gives a, there, but there's hope in that. He's warned us for our own good so that we would be hopeful, anticipating, and ready for his return. He is coming. And to those who aren't ready, their sorrows will be multiplied for eternity. We wait, we experience suffering for following Christ, but we don't lose hope because it's only temporary. Christ will return. And then in the second part of 3b, continuing the sentence, we see a, a solidarity that is restored. Then, after this, the, the, when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. All God's people will come in. And this anticipates, of course, the inclusion of the Gentiles in the people of God. People from every tongue and tribe and nation uh, being a part of God's kingdom. Now it seems like, as we look around us, that fewer and fewer are believers in the world. And we're apt to feel like Elijah. Remember Elijah, he said, you know, God, I'm the only person left that's following you here. And he was really upset. And God promised him and, and confirmed to him that no, there's 7,000 more like you that have not bowed down to the idols of the day. Now we might look around us and, and think, well, the church is going nowhere. But the church is going to, to grow. God will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you need to be a part of his church. And God is building his church all over the world. It might be the day of small things in, in our, uh, America. It might be in our community. But God is building his church from every tongue, tribe, and nation worldwide. And there's great revivals going on. And, and it will continue to be built until Christ returns. Now finally, and I think best of all, we see here a security that is lasting. What will this one from Bethlehem do for us? He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. We experience this partially now if we embrace Christ in faith, but one day when Christ returns, he sets up his kingdom uh, perfectly, we will experience this in, in ways that we can't even imagine. Look what it says there. Because he's standing on duty, as it were, as the shepherd, we, his people, can sit dwell secure. He's our shepherd. He looks over us. Because he stands and vigilantly shepherds, they sit, his people sit and dwell in security. And they shall be, he shall be their peace. And he does this in the strength of the Lord. God sustains his kingdom and the government that he has given him, it will never go away. It's an eternal dominion, an eternal kingdom. Now when we you flip over to the end of the book, to Matthew chapter 7, Micah chapter 7, it talks again about his shepherding qualities. Matthew seven fourteen, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land, let them graze in Bashan and, and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, 
I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn, turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. See, God's going to reverse, reverse the fortune of his people. They will one day share in his victory, in his conquering over all his and our enemies. The last to be destroyed, of course, is death. Who is a God like you? Echoing Micah's own name. Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Isn't that wonderful? God is going to to cleanse us completely from even the presence of sin one day. And right now he's working to, to free us from the bondage to our sin. If we have turned to him in faith, if we put our lives in his hands, he's going to clean us up and fix us and make us just exactly perfect like he meant us to be. We won't experience that now. until It won't be until Christ returns, but we look forward to that day. The Messiah will have worldwide Greatness, it says there. The Messiah's reign is mighty, steadying, triumphant, and universal. And Revelation 7 there gives us a picture of what it's going to be like. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And that's the promise we have. That's our hope if we have put our faith in Christ. And if you don't know that hope today, let me encourage you to call upon the Lord. Call upon him. Ask him to save you, to forgive your sins, to cleanse you, and to make you his child. Well, as a child, I, as I said before, I grew up in my hometown, didn't move anywhere, unlike my children who moved all over the place. But we think about Christ's hometown now and what it means to us, Bethlehem. It stands for God's unbreakable, stubborn promise. It can't be falsified, can't be terminated. God's promise that he delivered in Bethlehem uh, is eternal and forever and that's our, uh, our eternal, our eternity is in that one's hands. Will you put your life into his hands? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for the provision that you have made in Christ. Lord, may we not overlook or, or ignore him this Christmas season or for any season for that matter. But, Lord, we pray that you would reign completely in all of our hearts today. And Lord, we pray that anyone here who does not know you, that they would cry to you, that they would call upon you to be saved, to be forgiven, to be cleansed, that they would turn from their sin and put their life in your hands. And we pray, Lord, that all of us would do that, 
That we would continue to, to lay our lives down, to be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you. Make us more holy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.